Hello, and welcome to another episode of SBCC Vaquero Voices, a podcast highlighting the unique voices that comprise our campus culture and how we're all working together to serve our students and the community at large. As usual, I'm joined by co-host Akil Hill. What's good, y'all? And today we're honored to welcome Jeff Green to the show. Welcome, Jeff. Welcome, Thank Jeff. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the invitation. And you Long are... listener, first time caller. No, actually, you are our first repeat guest because you were That's a nice. guest on our live podcast we did for the holidays. Uh, Two years ago now, or you know, it's hard. The, the, the years yeah, blur years. in in the pre pre times, but yes. <laughs> so you are our first repeat guest, and you are the CEO of the SBCC Foundation, Santa Barbara City College Foundation. And for folks that don't know, I mean, you for folks that do know, you give an excellent presentation every year at our fall in service for staff and faculty. So folks that are here at SBCC should know a lot about the foundation and all the good work that you do. For the folks that aren't aware or, or aren't aren't privy to that presentation. Can you just kind of give a quick breakdown of, of, of what the foundation is, where it fits in in terms of the relationship with City College and all the a snapshot of all the good things you do for us? Because it is many and uh, the, yeah, you're awesome. So, well, that's, that's very kind. That's the best introduction <laughs> I've ever gotten, I think. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So the, the brief summary is that the foundation was created in 1976. So as most folks watching, listening to this know, the college goes all the way back to 1909. The foundation started in 76. So a good half century plus later. Um, but we've been around since then as a partner. So we're a nonprofit community foundation, 501c3, partner to the college. And really our job is to build relationships, to connect with donors, raise resources, and invite really any and everyone to give to support the students at SBCC. Some of that's direct, like scholarships, the SBCC Promise, things like that, which we can talk more about. And some of it is by supporting the actual programs of the college. So we have a hand in supporting a whole range of programs from every just about everything under the roof of EOPS to our nursing students uh, programs to just a whole range of academic programs and capital over the years, too, when a big project comes along. So it's really the all-purpose nonprofit partner to the college. So I, I worked, my previous job was at a library, so I had a, we had a similar relationship in terms of the public library with the Friends of the Library, like an organization. Yes, yes. yes. But in terms, in terms of you and the scale that you operate on, it's like... Literally ten times the magnitude. So I mean, and, and with a similar kind of staffing level, where you don't seem to have a lot of people. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but you don't seem to have a lot of people. But they all are mighty and do all kinds of things. So in terms of mighty how cool. you get done, what you get done, is there a, like any knowledge you can impart to the to the audience, <laughs> like in terms of what what is your secret or what what's, what's too, the yeah. Well, first, I'll say, you know, we we are the uh, inheritors of some great work before us. So like like all strong organizations, it's it's ongoing. So when I, I've been here now, uh, not quite eight years, I joined real early in 2015, accepted the role in 14, started at the beginning of 15. But I'd known many of the folks that had been involved with the foundation, both in my role as CEO, but also other you know, past executive directors, past development directors, uh, past staff, certainly a lot of donors course college leadership that supports and partners with the, the foundation so really it's it's been built over time uh, part of part of the benefit we have is we have a lot of invested resources so when we get large gifts um, some of those are meant to be here in perpetuity so we have our own infrastructure that's built for I mean I have a three three members of our, our crew are the finance team so three full-time people doing that work so we've got our our chief finance officers Ronna Morris got Jill Pena, who's actually one of the longest serving members of the staff. We've got uh, Jasmine Tran. So they they run their, we, we have our own accounting system. So we're doing both management of resources. So we invest in, and uh, manage investments, but also raising and, and distributing funds. So 
Um, the, the development team over the years, uh, many folks listening and watching would have known Gretchen Hewlett, who's actually, I think she still holds the record for the longest serving staff member here. Uh, she, uh, she retired a couple years ago after almost 22 years uh, on the team. Uh, Don Sanchez, who's currently executive assistant here, she's, she's coming up on that record as well. So we have a lot of longevity, a lot of long relationships, and we are out raising dollars all the time. And really the, the fact that, you know, if that weren't for the college, we wouldn't be here. So the bottom line is it's a compliment to the, to the college and everyone knows the fantastic reputation of SBCC. And there's, you know, many people in this community that are multi-generational, you know, SBCC student, staff, faculty, their uncle worked here. They went here. The mom got their, her degree here, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it all comes together, but it's based on just uh, raising private resources to help the college. One of the things that people may not realize is that people ask me what I do. Occasionally I still have people that say, no, but what do you do for your job? Like, like this is my volunteer work. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, no, we may not understand what we, the range, what we actually do here. I mean, scholarships are the most well understood piece of the work, but that's really a minority piece of what we do. And, and really, uh, when people ask, you know, I say it's, it's higher education philanthropy, but when they think about it in terms of what they may recognize, you know, the Ivy Leagues figured this out 200 years ago. And the big four-year public institutions really started to jump into philanthropy in the 1980s and 90s and really ramp it up then. And I just joked that, you know, for us, it was last Tuesday. So on a relative <laughs> scale, community colleges are newer to philanthropy, and we happen to be one of the longer serving institutions and also one of the larger um, and a lot of that has to do just with local histories. And you did good that you compared it to the four-year institutions because as someone who went to Cal Poly and saw, you know, Warren Baker, who just recently passed away, yeah. he was he made philanthropy a big part in just outreach in terms of getting the word out and then seeing that kind of come back mm -hmm. in future donations, things of that sort. So I guess you could speak on that a little bit in terms of being a nonprofit. My my wife's father runs a nonprofit in LA County, you know, and and it's kind of where you have a mission and you kind of work for the mission and, and the work you do. But a lot of the time, most of the year, you have, you're looking for more funds. So in terms of balancing the fundraising, the philanthropy aspect with the actual mission statement and the work, I mean, it's tough. I know it's tough, but I mean, is there kind of any pieces that make this particular foundation interesting or is it just the same, same as that where you're just hustling well, all the time? I mean, yeah, it, 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 when done right, it's all the time. Uh, the reality is, you know, fundraising is, is relational. It's relationship-based. There is a science, there's technique. There, you know, there's piece, there are pieces of the work that are very data-driven. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the personal connections, and that's what people give more often than not. I mean, there's other incentives to give. So folks give because they have a, a tax benefit. Some people give because they have a tradition or a family tradition of giving in a particular way. Some people, it's just out of personal experience, loyalty, love of, you know, paying it forward, whatever it may be. But in the end of the day, they need to know you, trust you, understand what you're doing. So a lot of my job is, is building those bigger picture relationships. Nobody can do it alone. You know, the more, more the merrier. Our board is involved. Our staff is involved. Lots of volunteers. Lots of college. I mean, I, I say this to a lot of college leaders. You know, you're a fundraiser, whether you like it or not. And, and that's true in the sense that people look to you. And you know, if they know you in the community and they know your work. You are part of that calculus of where they decide to, to give uh, to whatever they, they may do philanthropically. And so a lot of what, I mean, I, my background actually is, is pretty far outside higher ed and very much community-based work. And so that to me is a natural place to, to be and to work. And so I spend a lot of my time out in the community connecting with other organizations that, I, that are either partners to us as a foundation or the college, or I think are 
are just strong community organizations that, that serve a similar purpose, even if not directly. So a lot of it is that it's just, it's being, being visible, um, having people trust you, know what you're working on. And, and a lot of it then it does, as it always does, comes back to the college. Did you have a good experience with SBCC? Um, that's the strongest argument in many cases. And I know one of the big events that you came under your watch was the spring gala that you started. Yeah. Was it a couple of years ago? I remember that when you were planning the first one and yeah. I know, and then, and then some other things happened in between, but some other things happened. Yes. Yeah. But in, <laughs> but in terms of like, you know, event, those big event planning, yeah. things like that. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of everything going on. And but at mm-hmm. the end of the day, you know, like just putting it on, you, it feels like a success, but yeah, it just, just, how does that tie in? And I mean, it, does that, does that take too much time or is it it's worth the effort? I mean, yeah. I, I know I'm sure the numbers come in, it's worth the effort, but at the same time, event planning is no joke too. Everyone kind of trivializes mm-hmm. some of these things. It's like, oh, yeah. you're just going to throw a big party. Oh, you're just going to have a nice meal. It's like all the logistics behind that. Like my yeah. head is spinning just thinking about it because I've, I've put on smaller scale events that have no kind of, you know, pomp and circumstance attached. So when you want to get that kind of the air across, it really, you right. really have to put in that work. So I'm just trying to really yeah. just highlight how much work goes into what you do and how yeah. easy you make it seem in a lot of ways. Cause you do like, you kind of play it off sometimes like, Oh yeah, you know, we just do this and this, but it's like, I know it's yeah. a lot of work. Cause like I said, I, I know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for knowing that. Uh, but you're right. You're right. I mean, if it, if you do it right, it feels like it was effortless and everyone goes away like, Oh, that was great. Yeah. The Gale is a great example of just, uh, you know, experimenting and I, you know, that's my, Personally, I, you know, I like to experiment. I like to try new things, see what works. Um, and, and the gala for us was a new thing starting. Yeah, we mentioned it. A few things happened. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I first asked the question to my team probably in 2016 about, you know, what, what about, you know, should we try to do something that's more gala-like? Because historically, that was not something this foundation did. And there's reasons for that. And in fact, the, one of the ironies there is I'm also, you know, I do a lot of training of other boards and fundraisers and colleagues out in the community. I do a lot of facilitation and help people plan. And, and so I like talking about this stuff. I'm, I'm a nerd when it comes to this stuff. So uh, I, I would often advise people if they ask my opinion, I say, you know, Gala, big event fundraising, put it last on your list. It is, it is the least efficient way to raise money in many senses. Interesting. Um, which yeah. is true. In a lot of senses, it is true that a lot of people underestimate how much work and cost goes into a fundraising event. And then at the end of the day, the net income can be very small or even net negative. That, that happens actually more often than people would care to admit. Now, there's other reasons to do it, and that's to build, you know, community and, and get, gain new friends. And so, you know, friend raiser is a term for a reason. But for us, yeah, I felt in, in this community, it was a hole in our strategy. We did really well with certain things. We had a great pipeline of estate gifts. You know, we had talked to folks over the generations about leaving something in their wills or trust to the, to the college and the foundation. We had a pretty good annual program where we mail out a couple times a year. We we had, um, you know, we're growing different pieces. But the one hole for us in this community, which is highly social in its philanthropy, at least some of the community is, is we didn't have really a big gala that anyone could come to and buy a ticket and celebrate and, you know, throw a big fancy party really is what it is. And there's some choices you have to make in that. Uh, part of it is if you make it a high dollar event, a, you know, high end event, you by, by definition exclude a good number of your community. And so if you're going to do that, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but you have to be clear that, okay, if this is something that's only for folks that can pay a certain amount. So what, you know, how, what's the whole picture? Who else, what other events do you do? Who has access to which ones? And as long as you're covering the breadth of, of your community, I think that's, you know, you can play with these strategies. So we, we first talked about it in 16, we actually planned it for 17. And then, of course, we had Thomas fire and lots of other fires happen. And then we had some presidential transitions. And 
Then we were like, okay, well, we're going to do an early 18. Then you get the debris flow, Montecito, and then you know, nobody's in the mood for another fun. Okay, well, we're going to put it off. We'll put it off. So finally in 2019 was actually our very first one. That was in the spring. It, it went off beautifully. It was our first ever gala. We're like, all right, this is great. It's going to be an annual event. So we're ready for spring 2020, right? We're going to aim for first of May. Oops. So, <laughs> so then COVID hit. So we we kind of pivoted, got, you know, watched what everyone was doing. That's when the, you know, the advent of the modern online event started. And, um, you know, because I MC an auctioneer for other people, I got to kind of practice it with other organizations. And after kind of getting the feel, we talked about it and said, yeah, you know, we could do that. So we did one in, in the fall, actually, of 2020. That was our second one. And then this last spring of 22, we let, we let it go for 21 because it was so uncertain as to what was possible. And then we did the one in the spring. So actually, I just got a phone today uh, locking in our date. So to anybody listening... <laughs> May 20th, 2023. This will be, it's actually, it'll be commencement weekend. So commencement will be on Friday. Uh, the fourth annual gala will be on Saturday. And, and in person uh, or virtual? We're going in person, outdoors, like we did this last year. That felt like a good uh, mix so that folks that were more comfortable being out, outside could come in person, but we still could, you know, build a little platform and intend to hold an event space. So it, we felt it worked really well, and, and we will definitely do that again. The good news is the bottom line for us on those is they have been raising hundreds of thousands of dollars. So when you know our, our theories seem to prove out, which is that it was a strategy that, that we could pull off and that would be a benefit uh, to where, the college. So, Where was the venue at on that last year? So this year we did on West Campus out on the lawn. We actually built oh, out an entire, it was a blank slate. It was just the grass, and we built a platform and a tent and stage and and dined with 280 folks um, out there. The one in 2019, the other, only other one we did in person, we did indoors in the sports pavilion, and that was about 320 people. So, so we aim for about you know 300-ish folks. May grow over time. Mm-hmm. It's a dinner. It's a couple of surprises in there usually, and then uh, just a, really a celebration of the college, and we get some great stories and get folks to get to know us better. And you said May 23rd? Or May, May 20th, 20, May, May 20th, 2020, May 20th, 2020. And it's, it's nice to tie it into commencement because, you know, you have a lot of families in town, you know, cause a lot of, a lot of folks graduating from SBCC are like kids of parents who went to SBCC yeah. or there's, there's yeah. relations in town. So yeah. just having the events married. And then like yeah. for a lot of folks, they haven't maybe haven't been on campus in a while. So having an event where they can be on campus and like you said, celebrate the yeah. college, celebrate the location, celebrate, you know, all that we do here, the culture here. Yeah. I mean, it's, that, that's a great Great kind Turn of it city. into an SBCC weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Commencement's Friday, Gala Saturday. Do you guys do any silent auctions or anything like that? <laughs> we, you know, we have not. Uh, I've always wanted to go to one of those things. Oh, well, silent. Yeah, we do. We do have a small live auction in the Gala, but silent auctions. So I came from an organization that did one of the biggest silent auctions in the Western world, probably. We had two to 300 items every year. Um, actually, one year, a couple more than that. We just, it was, it was an incredible amount just, tables and tables of, of stuff all donated by local, you know, businesses, community members, et cetera. And those can be really fun. That's just, I mean, that's mostly a, a logistics and organizing task. The but, event can be fun, but then the rest of you're hustling for donations, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, yeah. I've definitely seen that silent auction racket. I mean, not yeah. racket, but like that hustle too. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. I used the wrong word. I was yeah. my, my bad. There's, there's but, a lot of good ones in this town, but uh, yeah, yeah, we have, we have not yet gone there. We might, I don't, I can't, can't predict, but, uh, the model we have now for the gala, which is a little more stripped down. I mean, I'm a big believer in less is more when you want to do those kind of things. Nobody wants to sit through a 10-hour program. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you're saying. You know, what they want is just to 
get a taste of it, be inspired, get some knowledge, meet some fabulous people, have a good meal, celebrate. So that's how we try to do it. And I do feel like the gala approach works for this area because, you know, in terms of the relationships that folks have in this community, it's not always like a traditional Hollywood, like Rolodex. There is a lot of like word of mouth, like legitimate friendship and camaraderie where folks that know each other will will kind of like form those networks that way. So, but it's been in terms of those kind of like celebrations and parties, like, like, yeah, everyone wants to party together. Like it's a good, it's definitely a good setup around here. And once you do it a few times, you get the, the reputation does travel. Like you said, it's a smallish community. And, and so if, if you've done a few ones where people have had a lot of fun, they go home and tell their friends, the next one you do, you generally are starting with a real positive attitude and, and uh, folks are, are wanting to be part of it. I like the idea of really utilizing the campus. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I always tell people that, you know, it's one of the, I mean, where we work is such a beautiful atmosphere and, and um, sometimes I don't think we take advantage of it enough, you know what I mean? And so that's, that's, that's really, who knows, maybe Hong and I will pull up to the next one, to the gala. Uh, Absolutely. Depending what the the per person table cost is, because yes, (laughs) I would, I love to support, but I also have a family to feed as well. (laughs) We will find a way. That's the thing where there's a will, there's a way. There's always a way. um, You know, what you said, Akilah is right. And this is something we talked about at the beginning is, What's our unique, you know, what can we do uniquely? And, and one big piece of it was the campus itself. So that's why rather than going to a hotel or a ballroom somewhere, we went into the sports civilian. We just transformed it into a, you know, event venue. And then uh, last this past year, we did the same, but we did it outdoors. And yeah, there's no competing with that. There's, there's nothing like SBCC's campus. So we we thought, let's, let's take advantage. Let's show that off. <laughs> so we did. Yeah. Yeah. So next time, if you do anything silent auction, you can silent auction Hong and I. Lunch with Hong and I. <laughs> five you know, cent minimum. Five cent minimum bid. Arrow voices. All right. Hey. All right. There it is. You heard it here first. <laughs> hmm. I'm gonna work on this. I, I'm gonna make some notes right now. Yes. All right. But but the logistics of it, yeah, the logistics of it doing it here on yeah. on, on campus as opposed to somewhere else. It's a built has that built and stuff. It's a lot yeah. of extra work for you. Again, I want to highlight that, but also want to yeah. highlight how well y'all crush it all the time. And and if if, if if y'all are interested, you will have a good time. The, the the you know it speaks for itself. Where you're not only supporting, yeah. you will have a good time. So thank you. Yeah, and then the team here is. It's uh, you mentioned the. I mean, we're we're a team of 13 at the moment, and yeah, they're all just top-notch rock star colleagues. I, I I'm real lucky to to work with all these folks. So and many many are well known on campus. So. I mentioned, you know, Zoran and Jill and Jasmine, the, the finance team, but of course, Rachel Johnson, our chief uh, program officer is out there all the time on, you know, campus working with different departments and, and programs. And, you know, she's also an expert grant writer. You've got Allie, who's running our scholarship programs, Allie Rignati. You've got Jen LeMay, who's, we also have our in-house, essentially PIO, you know, marketing communications director. So we're, we design all that work. It mentioned Dawn, who's kind of holding it together. She's the one I go to for all the relationships, but she's known everybody for 20 plus years. And then, and of course, the promise is our our big flagship effort, and and Sergio and Gandhi run that now, and, and they're you know very well known by students because that's who they reach out to, and so and, and you know, probably the most behind the scenes member of the team is Rena Gabay, who's, who runs all of our our database uh, management, and of course that's for foundation critical, because um, you know we're we're collecting relationships and names and contacts and making sure we always know who to reach out to and for what. So. You know, it, it is a relatively small team, but but compared to community college foundations, it's considered huge. We are the largest community college foundation in California and one of the largest in the country. Uh, and that's that's more important comparison for what community college philanthropy is at today 
I think a generation from now it'll look very different. Um, so we're still small relative to most four years, but but not relative to community colleges. Setting the pace, pace setters, yeah. pace setters for the state. Yeah, so I mean, you mentioned you highlight some of the the really big programs that that some folks may know about SPCC Promise, which yeah. is books, tuition, fees, supplies yeah. for two years for local Santa Barbara residents, you know, uh, high school graduates. You know, various various other programs. You said EOPS, you get a lot of a lot of uh, donations and stuff like that. But I I always know the foundation as someone where if we're, we're, we're having an event or a program and our funds are like here and maybe a little, little extra here or there, if you ask the foundation, they will yeah. always entertain. I mean, I've never heard you say no. I mean, I don't want to put that out there, but at the same time, <laughs> y- y'all are, y'all are so good about cutting through like red tape. And I, yeah. you know, I talk about the pace of bureaucracy sometimes yeah. y'all are just like, boom, do it. Boom, yeah. do it. It's always like, okay, that's not that much. Boom, do it. And it, that, that to me is the uh, the hallmark of of just how like that that's what sticks out first in my head when I think about the foundation is how willing y'all are to help because for me I'm I'm always thinking about like doing the bookkeeping in the back of my head like oh we can't make this work it's like ah, we already have this plan I don't know if we can do this but anytime we reach out to y'all it's like boom do it go for it try it you know like I, I you know I'm work, I work with students for the the guided path with things reach out to Rachel for something you know and, and with emergency grants that y'all are doing yeah. boom do it it's always a boom do it and I love I, I love that y'all can do that for us and I'm sure that's got to make you feel good too that you can make so many people on campus you know just just help them get that last mile of, of whatever they're working on. I'm so happy to hear you say that, Hong. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that is true. That's what we, so there's a couple things about our structure. If you, if you look at foundations and community colleges, we are unusual. We're not unique, but we're at one end of the spectrum. So we are a completely independent entity. What, you know, there's pros and cons to all these models, but the pro here is we can move quickly. We can be entrepreneurial. We can, you know, figure something out and, and act. So that helps a lot because we're not part of a much larger institution, which just has to move slowly. You have to be more deliberative. You have, there's more pieces. So being small and able to move quickly is an advantage. Um, The downside of that or the other challenge then is if you're not in the infrastructure, I I don't work for the college. None of our team is employed by the college. So we're one step removed from some of the communications and some of the decision-making. So we try to have to act, we actively figure out how to, how to be connected. And I've never had a bad experience with college leadership on that. They always understand it you know, help us help you. So we'll figure out a way. It looks different from, from leader to leader, but we can always find a way. And yeah, we also then have to make sure that we're not getting accidentally tripping up college leadership and how we operate. So, you know, when you said, you know, we never say no, that's true. We always say you can call, ask us, talk to us. We'll tell you if it's possible, but in the end, we're always going to have someone go back through and make sure that they're talking to their, you know, their colleagues, their department chair, their director, their manager, ultimately the dean has is, is got to kind of sign off on things we do. And, and if we're doing something big, then it's really at a cabinet level. And, and that's fine too. But yes, we can move quickly. And we have a lot of people in this community that are interested in a whole range of things. And because the college does so much, it's, it's funny. One of the things I was probably most concerned about leaving what I had been doing, which was really broad-based community organizing work. I thought, well, okay, if I'm working alongside the college, it's going to be a pretty narrow lane. Like I'm ju- just going to be the college. And I, it, it, I mean, I learned a lot having to, to learn the college. I realized, well, you know, that's really not true because there's probably not a single thing in this community that the college either isn't or couldn't be engaged in, whether it be an issue or part of the community or what have you, because that's the mission of the college is to be open, accessible, um, resource to any and everyone at any point in time, almost any issue that they can be of service on. So that actually works well. And, and we do have some discretionary funds too. So being of the size we are, we have the advantage of sometimes somebody needs something and we just have it. We don't have to go raise it or ask somebody else for it. We can just offer it. That's the 
I mean, that, that's sort of the, the highest goal. What, what people may not know about us is that we, the vast majority of our resources are permanently restricted. So if you look at our balance sheet or you hear me make a presentation and I use a big number that starts with tens of millions of dollars, uh, it's true, but most of those have been dedicated to a particular purpose. So the vast majority of what we have is just for one thing. It was, it was set by the donor and by law that is sacred. So, um, you know, it's a scholarship or it's a particular program endowment or it's a very specific um, feature of a, of a program. So that's, that's what most of our dollars are. But we are big enough now to have enough that every year we do have hundreds, at least hundreds of thousands of dollars that are usable for something that may just arise or a need that may happen. And, and as you said, we don't ever want people to not do something for lack of resources. So if we can possibly solve that, I mean, the creativity on this campus is incredible. And, and you know, including you, know, you and all of us have had conversations where you've reached out and said, hey, we're trying to do this. What do you, and it's like, ah, yes, let's do that, as you said. And it's just a matter of, you know, what's the gap? You know, how much do you need to make it happen? Um, and, you know, don't, don't strip it back. If there's an ideal version of it, do that. And we have the resources to make sure it happens. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that is that it's, you know, if you have to ultimately scale back, of course, we all have to do that. But I always like to start from the question of, so if resources weren't an issue, what's the ideal version of what you want to do? You know, more often than not, we can do that version. Yeah. So. Well, I know the foundation was extremely uh, influential in helping with the mural oh, for, yeah. black, for black faculty and staff getting the QR code and then also providing the ice cream on uh, that <laughs> night that we had. Oh, that was, yeah, yeah. that was foundation. That was foundation. Wow, man. That's right. Huh? Sometimes it's that, just the ice cream is all you need. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Softy. Oh, that was, yep. that was, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like that, that you talk about that last mile, the little, the little piece of the puzzle that, that makes it from like a, a great event to a truly like, like a special, you know, like a, that special bit of transcendence. That yeah. those are the touches, Jeff. Those are the touches that that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's I, that's the glamour part of the work, right there. <laughs> well, I was even thinking about the little kids that were there because there's quite a bit of kids uh, yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, Hung, I think you showed up uh, with your son, mm -hmm. um, and the kids were out ripping and running, hula hooping, eating ice cream. Like those are the things that they're going to remember about Santa Barbara city college when they get older. Right. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, that they will come here. Um, and, and I think that's the piece that's so special about having a foundation that's willing to support and create these memories uh, for the younger kids in the community to see city college as a viable option. That's, yeah. it, that's extremely special, you know? Yeah, those, those are the kinds of projects that, you know, they're not necessarily in somebody's budget when they start the year, but they realize, like, here's an opportunity, here's a need. You know, I, I have to give credit, you know, the college leadership right now is, is great about that. I, you know, they, they want to find it, they can possibly do it. And of course, in the state right now, we have an upcycle in our budget, and we all know that doesn't last in public budgets, they go up and down. But right now, there's, there's dollars that are available, and I think people are trying to take advantage of that in a, as sustainable way as possible to get things done. That they've otherwise had to wait on. And so now one, one of our jobs in philanthropy is that how do you smooth out those swings? So right now, maybe you don't need us to do certain things because there are dollars available, but three years from now, four years from now, you know, whatever the cycle is, that shifts again. And then, you know, how do you avoid having to put up the brakes on everything? And then what are the things that are more about, you know, community engagement that maybe aren't core to the, the academic mission, but they're still core to the institution or the community relationship? And um, oftentimes that's where we we're asked to step in. 
Uh, and sometimes just to try experiments. Like I said, we, we believe in that. And it's not just on the fundraising side, it's on the program side. So if someone says, you know, I'm not sure this is going to work, but the data suggests, and I think, and I've talked to so-and-so, and could we try it? And uh, I think that's actually a really valuable way to work. But that's not always encouraged in, in larger publicly funded institutions because, you know, they want to stick to the core fundamentals that, that people are funded to, to do. And, that's, and I get it. And then that's where we can come in and say, and let's also try these other experiments. And sometimes when they work, they get ramped up and adopted into the institution. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it also the foundation's really heavy with the Durantes lecture as well? Yeah, yeah. So that was essentially co-created um, with uh, you know President Peter McDougall at the time, and the foundation leadership, uh, you know, 33 years ago now. You know, a- after Leonardo Durantes was killed, they they wanted to call out the dynamics there, the, the racial dynamics, the what was happening in downtown Santa Barbara in particular, but also you know they thought, well, how do you memorialize um, you know someone? who was a, a victim of that. And, and the best way that they could come up with, and to this day it's carried on, is to, to hold an annual lecture. Now I say annual, and it's now been three years since we've done it. Last one we did is 2019. And you know there are a couple of factors in there, COVID certainly being one of them. But even just this morning, we were having a conversation about you know getting ready to come back. Um, traditionally, it was always done in November. So probably November of 23, but uh, there's still a few more senior leaders that need to be uh, hired on and seats, seats move. But once we have a, leadership and a, and a new fully or as fully open as the new, the new normal will be campus. Um, we think fall 23 would be a great time to bring that all back. So, so in terms of all these great programs, we could do a whole episode just of all the programs and stuff that y'all do for, for the college, yes. but in terms of best way for folks that are now motivated to get involved and donate to the foundation, if you are staff faculty or just a random member of the community, yep. what are the best ways to get involved and, and donate to the foundation? Well, there's good old-fashioned uh, online giving, which is not all that old-fashioned, but now it kind of is, right? It's the uh, go click on the button. So yeah, you know, sbccfoundation.org. I'll say it again six times before this is over. I'll put uh, in the show S- notes too, but yes, please do. Thank you, sbccfoundation.org. So we, you know, you can give online. Uh, people can give one time. They can give monthly. They can give on credit card through the through the website there. Um, you know, we get a lot of checks in the mail still. That's still a thing. So lots of check, even cash in envelopes. That happens too. So really anyway, but I would say the, the fundraising events are a different you know, route to get connected to the foundation. Most of the events we do are free and they're open to at least some set of the public. It's the gala that we've already talked about where there's a ticket price and, and that's a fundraiser. The other way is a big, a big piece of, of it for the college has long been in estate planning. And I know I mentioned that earlier, but that's really working with people to put the foundation into their will, into their you know, people that are using trust vehicles or some other ways in their state planning. And the biggest gifts in philanthropy, if you look at philanthropy in the United States, the biggest gifts almost always come through state gifts. And so part of the longevity we have, there's an advantage there because there's people that have worked, you know, they could have been former employees of the college or just community members that have a love for the college. And, and so every year, a handful of those gifts do come to us as people pass. The other way to do it is to, you know, workplace giving, which for many years actually wasn't done here. So speaking now to employees that are listening to this, the, uh, the old world way was that the United Way was the workplace giving vehicle. And that, that actually ended uh, six, seven years ago now. And we started a small workplace giving program. So we actually can do payroll deduction. And you know, there's a couple dozen employees right now that do that. And that's, that's one way that you can give uh, where you, you, they say you don't even feel it because you never saw the money in the first place. You know, that said, there's a lot of folks that, you know, as uh, as much as I, I will always encourage someone to come work with and for the college, uh, you know, not everybody gets a, a lot of extra money there. So 
Um, I know that some people don't, don't want to go that route. So we, we try to make just everything available. So workplace giving, estate planning, events, just donations as you see fit. There's a major donor group that really is kind of the core of the foundation sustainability called our President's Circle. And those are folks that give $1,000 or more a year, unrestricted money. And that's kind of what leverages everything else. And there are a couple hundred in, in this community. We're very fortunate that, that do that. So that group will get together a couple of times a year to kind of hear the latest of what it is they're supporting. We write a lot of grants as well. So I mentioned, you know, Rachel and she, she's our grant writer along with uh, Aaron Travers. So they, they write grants, public and private institutions, corporate grants. And we have a brand new chief development officer, Sarah Stretz, who just joined us. Um, she's a, a rock star pro fundraiser. And, and so she leads our, our broader fundraising strategies. But the majority of it is individuals. And that's something not everyone understands is that, you know, corporate giving is important, grants are important, but the vast majority of giving for any in the country in general, but certainly here are individuals. You hear that corporations, you need to step up your game. <laughs> you wasted right. it. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. we, have a, we have a couple of very generous ones here in town. But yeah, if you look at that pie chart, and it changes every year. There's a study every year called Giving USA that shows how much private philanthropy happens in the country. And we're approaching 500 billion with a B in the U.S. But the, again, the vast majority of that is actually individuals. And if you take individuals plus the state plans and put it all together, you know, you're looking at at least 70% of all giving. That wow. wow. Um, foundations are, are becoming a bigger slice because a lot of people are using donor advised funds. But corporate giving has stayed pretty solid at about 5% every year um, over time. So yeah, individuals are, you know, those, that's why those personal relationships are so important. That's why having someone like you that is good at building those personal relationships it's great for organization. So, but I will put all those links in the show notes, put all the info in there. Thank you, Jeff. Now, segueing to our next uh, next segment, what brought you to SBCC? What what brought you to SBCC? What brought you to the foundation? Where were you before? What, what got you? me here? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a long and winding path. So. The shortest answer is in uh, 2014, I had, I'd been running into Dr. Lori Gaskin at community events here and there. And uh, I knew she, she was the president of City College. Um, and uh, one day we were talking at one of these events. We should get together for a coffee. I said, yeah, we should do that. So we went and had a coffee date. And in the midst of that, she said, you know, foundation is looking for a new director. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. And I know a lot of folks that have been in that seat over the years because a lot of them were colleagues. And she said, well, you know, would you ever do it? And I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not looking for a job right now. I know, but I bet you knew, you do need some. <laughs> and so we started this conversation where I, you know, I sat with this board and said, well, you know, here's some thoughts and here's some things and here's some ideas. And they came back and said, you want to do it? And I'm like, eh, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. And, you know, I'm not sure that we're doing the same kind of work. And we'd have the conversation again. And they say, great, you want to do it? And so, so eventually I said, huh. I think this might be a hint from the universe that I, I should be seriously looking at this. And, uh, and ultimately, I said, I, I would love to do it. It was right around the time that the last bond measure was being floated. You know, I was finishing up some work at my former organization with a fund for Santa Barbara. And um, I said, well, let's, let's reconvene after, you know, November of the election. Well, we did that you know, eight years ago now. And that's when we, we figured it all out. So that's why I started just right early in 2015. The narrative I had for myself was that, you know, I really didn't have any relationship to SBCC. And, and then I thought about it and I realized I did. I just hadn't consciously thought of it that way. So three, three things. One, I took a Spanish class at SBCC shortly after I finished at UCSB, which is what brought me to the community in 1990. 
I came here to, to take a Spanish class because I'd taken French for years. And when you live in North America, there's, unless you're outside of Quebec, you know, there's not a lot of French spoken. There is a lot of Spanish. Out. So I realized, gosh, did I make a mistake? I need to go learn Spanish. So I, I, I took a course. Not too long after that, I actually taught a course. So I'm technically faculty. I, I taught through a dole ed at the time, a course on the history of housing policy and homelessness, which is an area of passion for me that I, I worked on previously. And I, I co-taught it with a, another faculty member who was actually a, a UCSB grad student. And so that was, there was that relationship. And then after that, when uh, there was some real tough times starting between the community and the college in 08, 09, um, the, the college actually hired me to be the facilitator of the community meeting at the shot center where community members that were very unhappy with the decisions that had been made around the adult ed program and the leadership of the college were agreeing to get together and talk about it. And so I was, I was the guy, the microphone, keeping peace on stage and trying to, you know, help, help the community have the conversation needed. Um, so I'd had these glimpses of it. And, and my, actually most recently I was talking to Ignacio Alarcon, who was the, uh, an old friend of mine, but, but a former board member of mine previously and mathematics professor here. And he was the faculty um, Senate president, uh, academic Senate president at the time. And, uh, and he had me come up and facilitate their retreat back in 2009. So I had, I had all these little glimpses that I'd just kind of forgotten were all part of SBCC because they, they'd happened separately. So when it all came together, you know, you look back and like, oh, it makes sense, of course. And so that's really how I came, came to this role. And, you know, I knew what the college, what the foundation needed because of those conversations I'd had with the board and leadership. Um, I felt like that's work I can do, especially that community connection piece, because it, it had been some rough years. And I said, well, that, that I can do. I'm not an expert at SBC, on SBCC, but absolutely, you know, neck deep in community relationships and work. And I'd be happy to help, help further build that. And that's, that's really how I came here. And uh, yeah, I have to say no regrets. I, I, uh, I didn't know what I was stepping into and I didn't know what I didn't know. Had some ideas, but yeah, I'm coming up on a, it'll be eight years for me in January. So in that time, most of my teams turned over. So I, I'm, I'm real proud of this crew too. So the foundation is really strong as it's ever been. You know, the college is, is, it's been doing a lot of hiring of new leadership. And so I think there's some good years ahead. And you were at the fund for Santa Barbara before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there for almost 18 years. You can believe that. And, and it's so. interesting because, you know, the fund for Santa Barbara, their focus is social justice grant kind of kind of work and you kind of yeah. came in here like thinking like oh yeah I, I don't know what i'm gonna do with, with the city college but social justice is such a big part of you know like the city college mission now i mean it's, maybe it's a yeah. newer thing but at the same time yeah. it's funny that the, that connection wasn't there yeah. but like it was always there you know in a lot yeah. of ways too well that you i'm glad you said that because that actually for me was the missing piece i you know my passion and, and the way i work is I'm, i tend to be very structural in my thinking like i want to I look at a problem and think, okay, how do you how do you fix that? Like at a big level, how do you how do you solve a problem? Whether it be around poverty or oppression, discrimination, or exclusion, or an economic imbalance, or or a, whatever it may be, or a political issue, I think you know how do you fix that in a big way? I know, and coming from the fund, that was all yeah, social, economic, environmental justice work, and that's my my passion. And I, I didn't see that connection initially. And, and that's exactly what I had to learn. I had to face the, oh, you know, today when people ask me, I say, well, you know, it may well be that the single best resource we have, the single best public institution we have to solve any of those issues, whatever you're concerned about, um, is the, the community college. And, uh, and I didn't, I honestly can say I didn't really know that. I, I, you know, community college relationship for me was always something of an arm's length. 
And also a lot of the work I was doing in the community at the time, which was mostly the late 90s through the 20 teens, SBCC wasn't very visible at that period and when in social justice movements, at least in the broader community. Um, there's a lot of UCSB presence, there are a lot of other presence, but there wasn't a lot of SBCC presence or people that identified as being, you know, faculty, staff, or students of SBCC. And I think that has shifted. And I've certainly felt this shift in recent years where, you know, if I'm at a, a public hearing on any issue, I'm going to see people I know from the college. And that hasn't always been true. I'm sure it goes in cycles with any organization. But those two things coming together are absolutely um, part of what keeps me here and, and excited each day and trying to be creative. The universe was talking to you. They, they, yeah. they knew what they knew what yeah. they were saying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, great. Yeah. Good story. Yeah. That's, right. that's, how, that's how I got here. So, <laughs> yeah, we're glad to have you. And we're, we're hopefully have you stick around for a lot longer. So, yeah. I kind of feel like the old man these days. You know, I look around and I'm like, oh, man, I've actually been here a while. I, I still I, call this my new job up until pretty <laughs> recently. And I finally said, all right. Stop saying that. <laughs> I still feel like an SBCC baby, you know, like I've been here, what, four years, four yeah. years, almost five years. And everyone's everyone around me, like 20, 25 years, 30 yeah. years, you know, like Akil, totally. Akil's getting close to, you know, I guess gentlemen don't tell tales out of school, but Akil's getting close to certain milestones, you know, like but 20 yeah. years, Akil, or, you know, yeah, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> fully vested, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, you do have a certain way of measuring that when you work in college. Absolutely. <laughs> I, and I think these last few years have been a part of that sort of they warp time a bit. So, you know, yeah. I mean, we all joke about, you know, go years or dog years. So how long have you been here? 56 years, you know. Yeah. It's, it's all a kind of a blur. And even in that time, you were to pivot so quickly due to the COVID emergency grants and all, all the stuff that you were yeah. helping out with. I mean, there's, there's ways for you to make that social justice kind of change, yeah. that, that change in people's lives. And touch them, you know, just just personally, individually. Like, yeah, there's just yeah. there's definitely ways to get in where you fit in. Sure. A lot, you know, a lot of that is being ready. And I, I've always believed this. And I, I have good debates with my my other colleagues in the social justice realm about this. I guess I, I come from the my observation of the world is that the best thing you can do is be ready because you don't know in that moment, that right moment emerges. You know, support the leadership on all these issues. Make sure the resources are there. Make sure folks are ready to move. And then. And then when the moment is right, they, we, everyone can move. And so for us, you know, that, you know, at a foundation, it's, it's not that sexy. It's about, well, how do you become fiscally stable, <laughs> have some money in the bank. And then when the crisis comes, you know, the rainy day, you know, for the rainy day fund, like it's raining, let's go. And that's what we, you know, that was the front of the COVID environment. Of course, it's also because of those community connections. And at the time I was sitting with a chamber of commerce board and, you know, I'm sitting next to local employers who are telling tales, you know, I just had to lay off you know, this many people or this many dozens or this many hundreds of folks. And I knew in that moment, you know, in March of 2020, that those those folks were employing a lot of our students because it's hospitality industry. These are, you know, the, the part-time jobs, often low-wage jobs that a lot of our students are holding down. And when I heard the people that actually, you know, are, are the ones hiring those positions say, you know, we had to let this go and we're getting shut down, whatever it may be, you know, we knew quickly that that was going to, that impact was happening in real time for our students. So, that's why, you know, you mentioned the COVID emergency grants. So we didn't know what the federal or state governments would do. So this is before CARES Act and, and all the other funds came. But we knew we could at least jump in and, you know, bridge people from that mid-March until early May to at least get folks through the semester if they'd lost work or had other challenges, you know, lost childcare, lost school opportunities and, and had children. So there, there was a lot there where we thought, well, what, what can we do as a foundation? And, you know, in this case, the, the answer was dollars. So usually the answer for a lot well, of things. <laughs> For better or worse, 
often yes. answer yes. whatever the question is resources are the answer and you know that's i would say money's a tool yeah it's it, that's all it is at the end of the day it's, it can be used for good or evil it can be used in lots of different ways and if you if you can use it strategically and, and use it for for good then that's that's our job Segue into our next section. Good eating. Jeff, uh, yeah. meal, food, or you know, recipe, anything that you enjoyed recently? <laughs> I know you I know you like to eat, eat good. I saw you at Bettina that one time. You do yeah. share that. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm an eater. I'm a I'm, I'm a chef. Actually, I love cooking. I will say I used to do a lot more of it than I do today. Um, something about I don't know, being older, having children, having a big job and a bunch of volunteer work. It just I don't do it time. as much as I used to. Time. You might have time to cook. You don't have time to clean. <laughs> I, I know. I'm. Uh, so, yes, I do love to cook. Actually, I'll tell you, over the weekend, I did something I hadn't done in years, which is uh, make a tomatillo salsa because, you know, we, we got some tomatillos and we're like, oh, wait, what do you do with it? I, I know. We haven't done this in a while. So let's roast them and make them. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, if I have the opportunity, I will always be creative at home with cooking. Um, but, but, you know, we live in a pretty good food town. So I got a lot of favorites. You got any specific one you want to shout out? Anyone you want to give some give some love to? Oh my goodness! Well, I, I love the folks at Opal. You know, Richard and, and Tina there. They, they've been generous to so many community members and organizations, and I I love going there. Uh, I think Scarlet Begonia is my latest breakfast hangout for for a real you know uh, a, a nice breakfast. Um, Did you get the pancakes? What did you order there? That's no, I got the uh, green rancheros. The green oh, rancheros yeah. has been my thing there. It's the grilled shrimp and the tortillas and the eggs yeah. and the whole. That's my that's my latest. I, see, I don't even go out that much anymore. That's what's so funny. I <laughs> haven't been since they went to their new location. They moved to they moved to where the nugget. Yeah, they're was in the right old. There. It was actually the old Soho spot years and years and years. Oh yeah. yeah. Then it was yeah. Blue Shark Bistro. Then it was yeah, it's yeah. been all kinds of things. The one that Kevin Costner owned, I think it was. Yeah, at one point. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was that yeah. Epiphany or uh, yeah, uh, I think it was. I forget what it was called. I think it might have yeah. been. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. there's yeah. Yes, that spot right there on Victoria. Yeah. So yeah, I was just there the other day, so it's top of mind. But um, you know, the other the other place I love, you know, as far as folks that that last, for Cajun Kitchen has always been mm-hmm. a favorite of mine. But the other is Bouchon. Um, so Mitchell Sherman, of course, he teaches here too in the culinary. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you ever want a real nice celebration dinner, that's where that's where I go. That is still my pick for in terms of fancy. Like if you want yeah. a nice, really nice dinner, where to send somebody. I mean, yep. it would be down, Downies or Bouchon now that Downies is no longer here. That's right. Downies was another great one. They're also yep. gone. So, yeah. The sushi place that took over Downies isn't bad, though. I forget what they're called. but I'll I haven't been Bouchon there yet. Else. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. And so in terms of cooking, is there a favorite thing you like to cook? Is it the grill <laughs> or is it like, you know, um, cast iron? Let's see. I'm a, a fish and veggie person. I have a, a classic Mediterranean diet. So I love to grill fish. Go down to the Santa Barbara market there and... Uh, and then uh, vegetables or, you know, we grow a lot. I, I, I love gardens. So we, we grow like 25 things in our yard. And so uh, we try to do as much homegrown food as we can. But uh, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a pasta guy too. So I'll make pasta almost, you know, I'll make anything into pasta. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, you get into those habits where you just have your go-tos. I remember I was getting really creative a few years ago at my, my in-laws house. And I, I was thinking about it now, like I would never do that now. Like I was doing this experimental recipe out of a book that I'd never tried before for like eight people. <laughs> and like, hey, that's what I used to like to do for fun. But it's been a while. Yeah, life gets busier. It just gets yeah, busier. Yeah, that was a curry busier. with a whole bunch of other stuff. It was great, but it was, uh, yeah, bigger production. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll get links to all, all right. those places in the show notes. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Kiel, you want to go? You want? I guess I can go. I, I got my pick kind of 
kind of segues into, into Jeff's pick a little bit. I wanted I wanted to, to shout out seafood, especially uh, shellfish, crabs, lobster, and shrimp. In terms of a lot of folks, they, they they don't, I guess, love it because they only know one preparation, which is, you know, the boil with butter and lemon. And there's so many other ways you could do shellfish, you know, like there's, like in terms of, especially coming from a Chinese family, like we, we do, uh, you know, green onions and ginger when you toss like, and a lot of times, a lot of times they do it whole too, which is a problem where like, if you get a whole lobster, a whole crab, you need the cracker. You don't know how to get in there. It's like, it's hard. Like a lot of Chinese families, what we do is we, we chop it while it's not cooked and then we, we stir fry it to cook it. And then it cooks that way. So like garlic and green onion, they have the garlic, uh, you can bread your shellfish, deep fry it and then toss it with fried garlic. There's a Singaporean chili crab, if you know about that, where it's like a chili with Taking tomato notes sauce. Again, huh? Taking <laughs> notes. I mean, there's a place in LA, they do what's called house special lobster, which is jalapenos, black pepper, and butter. But like, again, chopped into pieces and stir fried. Um, you know, that's because I, I, when I had that, the preparation of seafood that the most folks know, which is steamed, you know, with the clarified butter and, and lemon, it's usually when it's really good, good seafood, you know? So like we, we, we'd have shrimp like that. It'd be like shrimp that's still alive. You just pull it from the tank. So I'm going to Costco and I'm seeing shrimp cocktail that's laid out like that with a little sauce in the middle, but it's like that limp kind of like, kind of like sea level shrimp. You can't do that. You know, like you, if you're going to be doing shrimp like that, it's got to probably still have the shell on where you take the shell off, you suck the head, do that thing. Don't, don't be buying the Costco like shrimp cocktail platter like that and thinking that's that. Of course you're not going to like shrimp like that. And I feel the same way about crabs and lobster. If you're only eating like the pre-cooked frozen crab legs, you get at the store, like it's already red when you buy it and bring it home. How long has it been cooked for? It's not going to be good. So, I mean, there aren't that many seafood places in town that will do like that kind of fresh. There's a drunken, drunken crab on state street. They do a specific kind, which is like the seafood boil style, which is kind of like a, you know, like there's some Southeast Asian influence there with some of the seasoning and stuff. But in terms of like, yeah, I'll, I'll put some links to show us some places in LA and some places close by because there aren't that many places here in, in Santa Barbara. I checked the China Pavilion menu and they still, you know, they just stick to like the fish fillet, which is another thing. Fish that's not like a whole fish with the head and the tail. You got, you know, you need more of that too. But you know, yeah, I'll get some. I'll get some plays in the show notes. I'll get some recipes as well for some of the popular preparations. Just opening up, kind of, kind of crabs. So I'm, I'm thinking about this because my dad had a birthday like a week and a half ago, and we we did lobster for his birthday. But it was like you know, just a classic family meal. And 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 I sent the photo around. Some people are like, whoa, what's going on? What are you doing with that lobster? And it's like, oh, this is not like a thing for a lot of people. You know, they only know. Like just a lobster tail, which is a great preparation. I'm not knocking the preparation completely because, you know, the, the truth is the meat, the quality of seafood will send it no matter what. If it tastes like the ocean, it's still good. But, yeah, I mean, if you're using like marginal quality seafood and doing it that way, it's not going to be good. So, yeah, just got to shout that out. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Akil, what you got? Uh, I'm going since we're still in Hispanic uh, Heritage Month. I'm going to keep with the theme of Mexican and I'm going to stay local with Los Agaves, everyone, you know, that's a local, a lot of people's local favorite. And yeah. one of my favorite dishes on their menu, and it's, it's my go-to, is the, the chilies norteños. It's mm-hmm. the polibano chilies kind of cut, uh, cut in half, and it's stuffed with shrimp and Monterey Jack cheese uh, in a chipotle sauce. It's absolutely amazing. That's kind of my kind of go-to. And then I will also say, I mean, their salsa bar is really good out there as well. I don't know know the exact name of the salsa, but it's the darker salsa. Salsa that's really really good. Um, it's, it's it's almost I think it's like black basically. So the roast is it the roasted yeah, one or the, I yeah. think it's the roasted one. It's dark and 
it's you know not it's not like the the rojo or the or the verde so it's mm-hmm. it's the darker one so that one's really that's one of my favorites so that's my choice i used to be uh a big on um los arroyos los and then arroyos. slowly slowly i'm kind of coming over <laughs> been to los agaves uh so but yeah that's that's my pick for the week I think Los Arroyos, I was going to jump in there if you didn't, because, you know, another yeah. SPCC alum right there. So mm. and, Tony, and they both they Arroyo, both yeah. they both have their their place because Los Agaves doesn't do the hob, the chopped habanero and onion salsa that Los Arroyos has. And there's, you know, there's there's still room for the both to coexist because I know that they are the kind of like the yin and yang of fancy, not fancy, but like, you know, special yeah, a- occasion dinner and stuff. So uh, Los Arroyos has that really good habanero salsa. It's like the cabbage with the, or it's, no, it's the it's the onions, the diced onions and the diced uh, habanero. It gets me every time. And they have they, they have a cabbage salsa. It's almost like a, yeah, like a, just yeah. A cabbage. Like a like, I'll just get in the cup yeah. and eat that too. So, I'll <laughs> I'll put links to both in the show notes. Thank you, Keel. All right, moving right along. Higher learning, Jeff. Piece of culture, book, music, movie, TV. You know anything you got, whether now that you're into or growing up that got you on the path you're on now. If there's anything you can shout out? Wow, I'm I'm an avid reader, uh, all nonfiction. That's my my love. So I, 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 it's all over the map. I'll, I'll tell you what's top of my stack right now. Unlike everything, not finished with it, is uh, Michael Sandel's The Tyranny of Merit. And actually, I got it from a board member of mine, and she, Lori Ashton, she's, we, we got into this conversation at her place, and she said, have you read this book? And I, I hadn't, and uh, it's, a great, it's a great analysis of the way that merit and meritocracy and the myth of it play into, um, you know, not just modern American culture, but in general in the world, and, and sort of how, and the subtitle is What's Become of the Common Good, and sort of this notion of, you know, only those with the merit X, Y, or Z thrive, but what about this notion of the common good? And so I, I find myself going back to that a lot. I find myself going back to um, Dream Hoarders, uh, which came out a few years ago by Reeves. He was basically just saying, look, you know, the, with wealth inequality as it is, and of course, given what I do with my days, I do spend a lot of time thinking about wealth and wealth inequality and income and income inequality. And, um, and he's really making the case that, you know, it's, it's not the top 1%, it's the top 10% in the US that's really kind of running away with the resources and leaving everybody else behind. And that, that gap is creating a bigger and bigger cultural and communication gap and, and a political gap as well as everything else. And, and going further back, there was a book by a guy named Bill Bishop called The Big Sort, which I also refer to a lot. And he, he's a sociologist who basically looked at how in the US post-World War II, people have self-segregated into like-thinking communities more and more. And so the notion of living in a place where you're naturally going to be living and knowing among people that come from different perspectives, different places, is disappearing in a lot of places in the U.S. And, and folks only know those who are similar or think alike. Um, and it's not just you know race demographics or age demographics or wealth demographics. It's also ideological. And so that's uh, another one. So, I, I, again, going back to my structural thinking, like I try to look at like, OK, what's going on here? And those awesome. are great picks. Like they, they, they complement each other well, because I think about the idea of the big sort and yeah. also that kind of leads right into your, your first book about mer- the meritocracy, yeah. because the folks that kind of lump together are the same folks that have similar upbringings <laughs> where they're like, Oh, why isn't everyone pulling this up by their pulling this up by their quote unquote bootstraps? Yeah. Because they literally have no idea of how much privilege they, they had 
yeah. to even have be able to have conversations about bootstraps and not just be yeah. thinking about survival every single moment of their life. So yeah. 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 So it's it's there's a lot of complimentary ideas there. And it's yeah. and those are good, good kind of pieces, good picks yeah. to kind of get that get that conversation started. Cause it, it is something that we need to talk about, especially because yeah. yeah, everyone wants to talk about these this these good old days and like a, let's go let's go back to like what good old days are we talking about here? The fifties when you couldn't even t- say what you yeah. really meant about anything in your life. The seventies when everyone was running away and getting serial killed left and right. I watched the true crime stuff. Yeah. If you weren't running away, you were getting murdered because you were running. You know, like so. I mean, the sixties when it was like yeah, right, like where it had to like <laughs> pop, like literally that all the repression of the fifties popped and you had the summer of love and then no one knew what they were doing afterwards i mean what is this good time you know like so it's it's yeah it's just funny to me and or the 80s where okay maybe you're having a good life partying in the clubs but everyone else is getting reaganomic and thatcher thatcherized into the into the pits so you know like yeah yeah you're saying there's no good old days what are you saying i'm saying yeah i'm saying we you got to get in where you fit in the good is there but yeah it's 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 definitely not yeah. I think those those are all yeah those are all top of mind for me. The other thing I'll say we don't have to go into this, but uh, I do read a lot on you know there there are a handful of really good books on philanthropy specific like the, the the notion of giving and what does that mean and how is it used culturally and the history of it and I I do think that's another fascinating uh, set of set of reads that is there a book that you could recommend for for folks out there? If they well, just I think like- Winners Take All, Winners Take All by Nanjaradras. Um, that is uh, you know the, the subtitle it's called Winners Take All the the elite charade of changing the world or the elite charade of, uh, yeah, no, the elite charade, the elite of, changing charade the of changing the world. It's, I'll it's I'll a series get of stories that he wrote about, and he, he later kind of outs himself as being of that elite, you know, winning, going and working for McKinsey and, and he's, but he's talking about how, you know, the gatekeepers to these big, you know, philanthropic think tanks are, are themselves insulated from the realities of the, of the world that they're claiming to try to help. And so a lot of it is very self-serving when, when and at the end of the day. So he's got a very interesting take on that. So I like I like that book. I like Decolonizing Wealth, which came out a few years ago. Um, I, again, I would say not a lot of new ideas, but a good sort of native analysis of how philanthropy and wealth have worked in the United States. So I, I, I'm I'm into that. I mean, I like the critiques of philanthropy because I think philanthropy at its best truly is an act of of giving and generosity and ultimately of redistribution of wealth and power. And that's, you know, that's where I think ultimately philanthropy at its best goes, is it really does equalize. It gives, you know, kind of redistributes what has been too concentrated in one place or another. But that's not, of course, the, the thing we all talk about. You know, I don't go out and preach wealth redistribution with donors most of the time. They're, you know, it's, it's much more about... <laughs> <laughs> as long as you say it like that, as long as you call it wealth redistribution, don't use the S word, right? <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. But, um, but, you know, that says we've grown farther and farther apart, I, you know, it's on people's minds and it's not something people folks want to take on directly. But I, I think, you know, it's a real question about how, you know, if the inequality is this extreme in, in the U.S. And we're, you know, we're cert- clearly in another extreme, unlike anything we've seen in a century. I mean, you got to go back to Gilded Age, you know, early 20th century to see anything like what we have today. And so that's and I don't think anyone thinks that's good or healthy. Even the folks that are the winners in that, so to speak. And yet, you know, tax policy and public discourse and all these things that might address it don't don't seem to make uh, much progress on it. So philanthropy becomes part of the conversation about, so how, how do you move resources to where they're not? Is it something you ask people to do willingly? Do you do it by policy? By Do you do it by how do you do it? And so I, that's, if you want to know, keeps me up at night at seconds. So. <laughs> 
and and you're 100 correct there and what's what's the one caveat as long as you've vetted the organization that you're donating to that yeah. the, the money you give them the money and it goes where they say it goes and i and and we can say that the foundation has been vetted you give them money it will go to where you want it to go whether it's you know some of these other organizations yeah. you can't you can't say that. they're 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 in on the grift too that is truly yeah. a racket but yeah that's why i don't i have no complaint about the demands of transparency for the nonprofit sector i think yes it is it is a lot and and but it is right and i think i would simply like to see that from everybody else i mean the nonprofit sector you want to know where it goes you you can know and you know everyone knows that one story where it went sideways and you know that's sort of the exception that approves the rule. But uh, I do think we, we rightfully spend a lot of time being transparent and reporting and opening our books. And we just got done with our audit, you know, so it, there's no question of where does the dollar, where does the dollar go? But, you know, the scale is, is part of the challenge these days. And I think philanthropy, the, the link I see, and I do spend a lot of time on the policy front still, you know, for every dollar that's spent philanthropically, there's 20 spent publicly. So if you really want to know where the power is, it is in government, it is in representative democracy, it is in tax policy, it is in public budgets, it's all those things. And so I believe that philanthropy can be a catalyst for that, but in the end, it's never going to replace it. So you, you can't let bad policy just run away and then think we're going to make up for the difference of philanthropy because we're outnumbered 20 to 1. So you, you really got to, I mean, philanthropy has its role, but it's not a replacement for, for good, equitable economic policy in the country. So. Yeah, you can't just you're not no you can't let the politicians off the hook. They still gotta they still gotta do the work. Yeah. They got the money coming in. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I'll be blunt. I mean, very honest, and I am open about this with folks. Like, and I think people that you know know where I come from know this. But you know, I'm, I I talk to billionaires. I know quite a few billionaires actually in this community, and people you know also just just south of that who have hundreds of millions in assets or tens of millions in assets, and and many of those folks are our donors here. And I think engaging with people who have made or inherited or both a lot of money about things like this can be really hard. And some, some folks feel it's intimidating because they, gosh, well, what if I say the wrong thing and they're, you know, they'll never give me another cent. And I, you know, that's unfortunate because I think if you, if you come at it from a place of respect and you're willing to, to have that conversation about, you know, what is right? You know, is it just about the tax benefit? Because for some folks, that's how they calculate. Okay, well, then that's why it's so important to have tax policy that actually encourages philanthropy. But what about the actual, you know, I keep saying tax policy, you know, that that's the decision we make collectively. And, and every few years, there's a redo on that. But, um, you know, in the US, taxation has gotten less and less progressive over the years, not more and more. So there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And, and of course, we talk about bonds for the college, people bring that up. So there's, there's a lot that goes into the public side of, of where does wealth live and where is it rooted to do the most good. But then there's the philanthropy part, which is the voluntary part. And so, and of course, that's what, you know, we do. So it's, it's, it is a complex set of questions. Yes. And, and we could do a whole show on that, but we don't need to do that. Yeah. I'm, it's, I'm glad you started the conversation like that. And I will definitely get links to all those books in the show notes because yeah. you picked a lot of good complimentary pieces that folks, if they're really just starting, just getting into things, it's a good kind of primer and a good kind of entry, entry point in to kind of have, have these conversations with, you know, their friends and, and, and whatever too. So it, those are great picks. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, Akil, you want to go? I guess I'll go again. Um, I had, a, 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 <laughs> I guess, I, I, go ahead, Akil. No, you yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Because right. I, I, again, I, I had a pick yeah. that I, you know, kind of, kind of segued in because I knew Jeff was coming on the show. So I wanted to pick a book from uh, Mohammed Yunus. He won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, book, uh, Banker for the Poor, about micro lending, Banker to the Poor. And micro lending is something that I I thought about a lot. You know, at the time we we did a, a SB reads about uh, Muhammad Yunus uh, two thousand eight or two thousand nine a while ago. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. I was really, you know, hip to the, you know, hip to the subject from that and reading the yeah. book. And it's just a great, great concept. The idea that it doesn't take much to be the catalyst in someone's life to really kind of get them moving. So mm-hmm. the idea was to get, you know, donations from folks, you know, $50, $100, $200, $300, small amounts that would be sent to, you know, various, various areas, you know, various people in need to help them start, you know, entrepreneurial yeah. business, business kind of goals. So it's, it's one of those things where the money, the money means this much to you, but to someone else it might mean, you know, this much like astronomically, you know, more importance, you know, in terms of magnitude and effect. So it's one of those things where I, I really do kind of uh, agree with that. And it's just a matter of kind of figuring out the best ways to provide resources and, and the best kind of micro lending resources. Do you know anything about that in terms of best practices in terms of, is it online or, you know, things of that sort, but yeah, if you can share. Well, that. There's, I mean, that, the, those models have taken off and, and I, I would credit Eunice with a lot of that. I mean, that had been done for generations on a certain scale all over the world, but he, he really, you know, shined an international spotlight on it. So, but yeah, there, I mean, there are online communities that do it. There are also real grassroots local communities that do it. And, you know, a lot of it comes out of family as well. So there, yeah, there, there's a lot there. That's a great one. Beyond the Muhammad Yunus book, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I wanted to give a shout out to an LA icon who passed away recently, Art LeBeau. Um, Art LeBeau, who uh, for years and years has done like an oldies dedication show on nowadays. It was on, you know, locally, you could hear, you used to be able to hear him on 104.7, I think it was. Yeah. But in LA, he was on like, you know, he was on K Day, which is like the back in the day station. But before that, he was on KRLA, which is an AM station in LA. And it was really, really the, a lot of kids that I know, their only exposure to AM radio was Art LeBeau. I mean, you listen to Art LeBeau sometimes, you'd get the Art LeBeau oldie CDs. Like, you know, he was the connection to not just oldies, but like a certain type of oldies, like the really like the love struck, like dedication oldies, you know, like Rosie and the Originals, Angel Baby is a hit because of Art LeBeau, the original Earth Angel from the Penguins because of Art LeBeau. I know about these songs because of Art LeBeau. But, you know, so he was just like in your life the whole time because you would listen to the show every week and you, you know, you listen to the dedications and it was a, a, a good kind of good show, but then you do the research and you dig and you realize that Art, when Art LeBeau came up in radio in the fifties, evidently in order to have a teen dance party, you need the approval of the LA County board of education because you had to have it at a, on a school campus because it was an event for teenagers. So in order to get a, around that, he would throw parties in Omani, which is kind of near where my parents grew up in the, in the, in the San Gabriel Valley. He would go outside of LA city boundaries to get out of that kind of education approval. And he would throw parties and those would end up being were, were some of the first kind of mixed parties, integrated parties in LA where Mexican folks, black folks, Asian folks, anyone could come party because in the fifties and stuff, like I was talking about those times where you couldn't talk about anything though. Interracial dating was not really uh, like acceptable at that time. So Art LeBeau in a lot of ways, you know, was, was a, a pace setter a trend center for, for just kind of the unifying power of music and the power to kind of change people's lives through, through music and good times. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where he changed my life in a lot of ways and, and opened me up to a lot of things that I would not have known about. Otherwise I was a punk rock kid, a hip hop kid. I thought I knew what was cool, what was what, and oldies was just like, that was dinosaur stuff, but just like, just, just how hearing how much, how moved these people were that were calling in to dedicate to people in prison to people that they loved and lost, to people that they loved and didn't know what they were up to. Just seeing what the, I mean, before the internet, you don't know, I'm calling about this girl. I don't I know we were together three years ago. I don't happen to her, but this is our favorite song. Can you play it for me? And like, just, just the connection he built. I mean, I, I'll always love Art. He has a million oldies compilations, Art LeBeau's Oldies But Goodies, volume one to 8,000. I'll put these those in the show notes, but but man, uh, yeah, I love, I love Art LeBeau. Rest in peace. So Yeah, Art LeBeau was 
I think you hit it on the head, man. Uh, Art LeBeau <laughs> definitely was that guy. Just one thing I really admired about him is like, you know, when you, things occur organically, like, like we were talking about the piece of interracial dating and, you know, I really believe that he set out just, just to DJ the music for the love of the music. And then mm-hmm. you start to see what comes out of good intentions where it brings people together and community and all of that just happen organically. And so I used to love listening to people call in and make those dedications and requests uh, because they were always so heartfelt, you know? So yeah, man, uh, shout out to Art LeBeau for sure on that. Rest in peace. <laughs> so I'm going to keep, I guess, my choice for the week since it kind of it doesn't really necessarily tie directly into Art LeBeau, but it, it is the music piece. I, I was telling Hong before we started recording about this time of year, like around early fall, I always get into it like a real jazz kick. And one of my favorite jazz artists is an Ethiopian jazz artist. And his uh, name is, let me see how my Arabic sounds but his name is uh malu malutu malu m-u-l-a-t-u is his first name and the piece of the song that i'm really into that i play every fall is just like for me it's almost like that charlie brown christmas (laughs) you know like that song that's always like you hear it it's just just nostalgic is uh tzita t-e-z-e-t-a um, just a classic, beautiful arrangement. Just will make you feel good wherever you're at. It, it just blends a lot of jazz uh, along with a lot of Latin undertones. Just a beautiful song. If you guys have a moment, just check it out. Uh, but that's my, my my pick for the week. It just, re- it just reminds me of the fall for some reason. Don't know why, but I just get every October, I just get into it. It's like a pumpkin latte. You know, when when pumpkin latte rolls around, I'm like, okay, it's jazz time, y'all. And and the thing about Ethio jazz, which is what they call it, because Mulatu, uh, I don't, I'm not gonna pronounce it. Mulatu is like the father of Ethio jazz. Mm-hmm. Is that everyone thinks of jazz as this layered like cacophony of all these sounds and stuff, but early jazz is not like that. You know, like like Dave Brubeck, it's just really just really tight timed. Mm-hmm. Just I mean, it wasn't until like you had like the like miles throwing everything at the wall, mm-hmm. seeing what sticks with all the miles ahead stuff like that. You didn't really get this layering until the African influence, the Latin influence got thrown in there. And you had all these rhythms climbing, climbing on themselves to build these pieces. So like Ethio Jazz, you get you wouldn't have really all that, you know, the, the Afro, the Afro funk and Afro punk and all these without these it's just those disparate styles climbing each other. I feel like Ethio Jazz is one of the, the, the progenitors, the predecessors of it all. So really getting into that and really diving deep into, into some of that some of those African rhythms and the, and the pan Latin rhythms and, and when they fuse with jazz, you know, Brazilian tropicalia, it's like yeah. as jazz touches on top of that bossa yeah. Nova, like all, just, just yeah. that, those kind of rhythms and that, that eclecticism. I mean, it's worth, it's worth diving in and that's a great entry point. And uh, I will try to, I'll, I'll throw that on next time I get a pumpkin spice latte. So <laughs> <laughs> just go all in. Yeah. Just go all in, man. So, so I'll put a link to the track in the show notes. I'll put a link. To the artist and uh, Ethio Jazz in the show notes. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. It was an honor hey, to have you. Thank you. This is fun. <laughs> Before we say bye, you say goodbye. Anything? Any final parting parting words? Any last plugs? I know May twentieth, twenty twenty three for the the <laughs> Spring Gala, but besides that, anything else yeah. you want to share? 
I don't think I have any dates. I would just say, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, eternally grateful for the support we get here. So I appreciate you guys have been so positive for, for the foundation. And I, we definitely feel that out in the, in the community and on campus. So um, I would just tell everybody, if, if you've got an idea, if you've got something you think we could, should, would do, don't be shy. We're, you know, just a phone call or an email away or text away or whatever, whatever you want, knock on the door away. Uh, and, and that's really what we're here for. So I, I would encourage people to just keep bringing their ideas and, and if what it takes is some resources to get them going, um, we, we are here for that. And I also encourage your friends, colleagues, family, neighbors, friends uh, to give because I, you know, I truly believe with philanthropy, anybody and everybody can give. Uh, most people do. It's one of the, the remaining uniting things we have in our, in our country and community is most people are donors somewhere, somehow. So um, if this place is special to you, uh yeah that's one way to show it pay it forward and we'll make sure good things keep happening absolutely sbccfoundation.org i will get that in the show notes sir again jeff it was an honor thanks for your time josh akil as always it's it's as always pleasure until next time this is the ghetto voices take care y'all peace thank you